Good morning, church. It is always a, uh, a joy and privilege to open up God's Word with you this morning. Um, as we get started, um, I have a question that I'd love to pose to you. Is Have you ever heard a story that's really been hard to believe? Like, you're like, there's, there's no way. Um, maybe it was a sibling of yours that told you this story, maybe a fish tale, right? Like, ah, oh, we went fishing, and I caught this fish, and it was 12 pounds, but it just slipped right off the boat right before I pulled it in, but you'd have to believe me. Or uh, maybe you, you uh, were talking about a deer you once shot. It's, you know, 14 points, easily. Easily 14 points. Or, or uh, maybe you're, you know, Telling a story, yeah, I was in labor for like maybe like five minutes, and then the kid was just here. Or uh, maybe maybe you 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 really do lean on the the side of sarcasm, and you think that the office was really funnier without Steve Carell than it was with. S- things that could possibly be true, but but really are probably not. Some some stories do sound. Uh, too improbable to be true. I've heard multiple stories like this before, and so I had to, I had to do some research to find an actual article, uh, and I did find this article. It, was in, uh, it happened in 1972 in Melbourne, Kentucky. A woman was driving home from the vet with her son in the back seat and the newly vetted dog in the front seat with her, and uh, this newly vetted uh, Irish setter um, got sick in the front seat next to the driver. And so in being severely distracted, she ran off the road, uh, hitting the curb, going off the road. The car begins to flip and turn over. Her son is ejected from the vehicle. The car lands on top of him, right? And uh, so the, the woman panics and gets out. Now this is a, um, she's, She's about a 35-year-old, 5'5", 120-pound um, part-time secretary. So she's not a weightlifter. She lifts the vehicle off of her son. It's a 2,000-pound Pinto, um, proceeding to allow her son enough time to get out from underneath the vehicle. If I tell you that, and we, we have a Pinto and a 5'5", 120-pound woman, we say lift, like that would be something that would be pretty improbable for us to believe. But the truth of the matter is that it happened. Uh, The woman also was very nonchalant about the whole thing. So it's, it's, it's also one of those things that you begin to question the validity of. And some stories that we believe are true are hard to believe. Some truths that we read in scripture may be difficult for us to wrap our minds around. Uh, Today we're reading further and into our series on the resurrection, uh, which is for some, as we'll see here in a moment, hard to believe. So if you will, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So we get into our text today. Uh, as Dana mentioned, if you don't have a Bible in the, uh, the chair in front of you, the black hardback Bible, we are on page 961. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses starting in verse 12, and we'll read through verse 34. So let's look now to this book that we love. Verse 12. Now is, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? 
But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, who, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life we only have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things into subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted uh, who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts in Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as it is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Blessed be the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Oh, Spirit of God, we ask that you come down now to illuminate our minds and our hearts while we hear and speak your word. We cannot understand and cannot obey unless you give us light and lead us in your light. Come and lead us in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning, I would love for us to take a look then at three points uh, that our text here lays out for us. First, our first point is the resurrection implications. Our second point is resurrection assurance. And our third point is resurrection realities. So our first point this morning and resurrection implications. It would be, it would be accurate for us to say 
that uh, everything that we read in scripture or everything uh, um, about God is not necessarily formulaic, right? That, that it doesn't, one thing doesn't necessarily depend on another thing to be true. Uh, there are many things that uh, are, are, are somewhat unclear, but we see them and, and believe them because they are from and in the word of God. Uh, but we cannot say that everything necessarily is, is formulaic in, in that A plus B equals C. But we do have things, as in life, um, that are somewhat formulaic. It's dependent upon something else for it to be true. For instance, if I, uh, if I was a member of Greenpeace, and I started to say that, um, that the, the entire climate change is a hoax, I would probably be kicked out of Greenpeace. They would ask me to resign. I would not be adhering to their doctrine. Uh, therefore, as we will see here in our text, um, the resurrection has implications for what we believe and how we believe. Uh, has resurrection implications that Paul begins to clarify are somewhat, um, not just somewhat, but are the foundation for the Christian faith. In verse 12, he says this, he says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? This, is, this objection that is being brought up by the church in Corinth is, is, is really starting to, to, to erode, if you will, some of the foundational elements of the Christian faith. Paul's addressing these concerns because he sees the implications of this type of error in teaching. All right? The issue here is in people's logic. Maybe they just don't understand the resurrection or they don't see how the resurrection could be true. And, and this is true very much today where like, we see things that you're like, that's really hard to understand. That's going to be really difficult to believe. But the fact is the resurrection of the body is an essential doctrine to the Christian Faith. There are, and this is not something, this, this rejection of the resurrected body of Christ is not something that is, this is an, an old issue. This is not an, an ancient issue. This is something that is very present and active today as a belief that, that Christians would even, or, or so called Christians would affirm, right? Uh, so on Easter morning, um, there was a, a tweet sent out by Serene Jones, the, the president of Union Theological Seminary, uh, who is a, a brilliant mind in her own right and well-accomplished uh, individual. Her tweet said this, said, Happy Easter. You can believe in the resurrection without believing in a bodily resurrection. Faith is more than adherence to rigid dogma. Now, I share this with you to point out the fact that, that this is... This is an issue that exists today. The rejection of miracles, the rejection of even a bodily resurrection is a theological issue that exists in today's culture. This is something that the apostles were dealing with prior even to, to Paul's letter to Corinth, and it is an issue that we are dealing with here today. But as Paul goes on to say in, in verses 12 through 19, he, he somewhat, if you will, plays along with the, the implications of this assertion. Uh, he says this, he says, if, if the resurrection of the dead is untrue, here are the implications. 
First, not even Christ has been raised. Secondly, our faith is in vain. Verse 15, third, we misrepresent God. Fourth, verse 17, you're still in your sins and we have a sin and salvation problem. Fifth, in verse 18, those who've died placing their faith in the Messiah are forever separated from God in hell. And finally, verse 19, we are hopeless and most to be pitied. We are hopeless and most to be pitied. The uh, theologian and teacher N.T. Wright says this. He says, such denial produces radical inconsistencies at the heart of Christian identity. At the heart of Christian identity, taking these things, the assertion that the resurrection did not happen is, is a, an attack at the foundation of what the Christian identity is. And just to be clear, these are the assertions Paul is saying if the resurrection is untrue. If the resurrection is not true, it changes everything. Because if the resurrection of the dead is not true, we have lived uh, uh, lies that are a lie. We have lived lies that are, that are devoid of a true hope. And honestly, as Christians, it, it should cause our entire lives to crumble. Because as Christians, we've based our lives on the truth of the resurrection. It changes everything. Everything that we have leveraged our lives for is now a lie. If the resurrection of the dead is untrue, then not even Christ himself has raised. Although it's hard to believe for some, Paul lays it all on the line right here. He really takes for us, uh, his, all of his chips, pushes them all in and lays his cards out and says, this is, this is what I have. This is what I'm basing everything on. He is committed to what he's saying here as, as the resurrection of the dead is true. Um, and he says, he says this because he has an assurance. He has a resurrection assurance. And he will, as we will get to here in verse 19. But our second point this morning is resurrection assurance. And just like Paul did in Ephesians 2, 4, where he says, but God being rich in mercy... He says here in verse 19, he says, but in fact, or but now, maybe your translation says, but now, Christ has been raised from the dead. Christ has been raised from the dead. He's like, yes, all right, I see your logic. I see the way you're going, and here are the implications of that. But the reality is that Christ is raised from the dead. He's raised, he's, he's alive, I've seen him. There are witnesses. We know this is true. This is not a, a, a philosophical implication. This is the reality of what is true, what we have seen, what the apostles continue to attest to. The reality is that Christ has raised, and friends, uh, as, as, a, as a pastor and friend of yours, I, I pray and hope that we never gloss past the phrase that Christ has been raised. Right? Let's not just move on and try to find some kind of helpful anecdote, some helpful things that maybe changes or affects our lives, or, or look at that and go, well, that's true, and, and I've accepted that, and, and good, let's move on. Like, for us, when we read that Christ is raised from the dead, it affects everything. 
Every single aspect of our lives, we have leveraged our lives for the sake of the gospel. We die daily for the fact that Christ is raised from the dead. Let's not gloss over us this beautiful mystery of how God has come to save humanity. It's, it, it, it is a reason for pause and rejoicing in our lives. So as you read the scriptures, as you see around Easter the, the phrase, he is risen, please, whatever it takes for you to, 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 to allow that to evoke something in you, let that evoke something in you. You're not at a point in which the resurrection of Christ is too big it's a, it's a, or it's too simple or it's too familiar. Let the resurrection of Christ be the thing that brings you to your knees in rejoicing and praise. Because Timothy Keller says this about the resurrection. It is the hinge upon which the story of the world pivots. The world pivots on this doctrine, this truth that Christ is raised from the dead. The doctrine of the resurrection has profound implications for how anyone lives. The resurrection of Christ in the past and the resurrection of human beings in the future have deep practical significance for the present. It changes the way both death and life are understood and experienced. Christ, verse 20, has been raised from the dead and he is the first fruits. He is the beginning of what is going to happen. It is not Christ has raised from the dead and that's it. He's the, the uh, he, uh, Paul uses the term first fruits. He's like the first harvest that comes in where everything else of that year, this is the indicator of what is to come. Christ's resurrection, bodily resurrection from the grave is the indicator of the truth that we will experience of those who are in Christ. Those who have fallen asleep before and those who will die after will experience this resurrection. Paul then harkens back in verse 21 to remind us that not only is this the this is the first fruit of what's to happen. This is a, a joyous occasion because in Adam, we, we have all died. In Adam, we have all died. We all have a fate that is determined for us of death and separation from God. But in Christ, all who are in Christ live and have life. And Paul interjects here to show the assurance of salvation in the same way he went through, he says, if the resurrection is untrue, here the implications. Paul's assurance of the resurrection also has implications. If the resurrection happened, one, Christ has been raised. Two, Christ is the first fruits of what is to come. Three, in Adam all have died, but in Christ all shall be made alive. Uh, four, Christ will come again. Five, he will come to establish his kingdom, putting all evil, corruption, lies, and horrors and injustices under his feet. And then six, he will destroy death once and for all. Once and for all, death is no more. Once and for all, all corruption is no more. Once and for all, injustice is no more. 
when Christ comes and he establishes his kingdom, he puts everything under his feet. Oh, that we would look forward to the day where death is no more. Where the the impact of sin is no more, where corruption is no more, where injustice is no more, when death will be destroyed, the evil that permeates and seems to touch everything around us, that steals that which is not his, taking the young before their time and separating families and communities and countries, that will come to an end. It will come to an end because of the resurrection of Christ. It will come to an end because he is Christus Victor. He is the one who reigns and rules and will reign for eternity. This is the hopeful anticipation because we have assurance in the resurrection. This is the life that we live because we have a hope for what is to come. The resurrection is the signet ring stamp on what Christ will do and is doing. And even if you have doubts, like there are many, many like extraordinarily brilliant people, I mean like super brilliant, that have looked at the resurrection and have tried to break down and and analyze it and try to poke holes in it. One of those individuals is is Anthony Flew. He was a a famous and one of the most well-respected atheistic philosophers uh, in the last 50 or 60 years. And he said this about the resurrection. The evidence for the resurrection is better uh, better than for claimed miracles in any other religion. It is outstandingly different in quality and quantity from the evidence offered from the occurrences of most other supposed miracle events. So what, and even that statement is like beyond like, like the, the casual listening. Uh, but what he is saying is like, the evidence for the resurrection is so outstanding. The evidence for the resurrection is the one thing that we can look at and go, if you, if you were to point to a miracle, a, an act that is not within the parameters of, of, of science, things that are outside of, of what is commonly seen and done, it's the resurrection. Like we have more evidence, we have more proof for the resurrection than any other thing. And this is coming from an atheistic philosopher who's, who's consistently trying to defeat this position. The resurrection being true is our assurance for what is to come. And therefore we have resurrection realities. So point three, the resurrection realities. Resurrection realities. And, and Paul continues here in verse 29 through 34 telling us of our future hope. Our future hope and, and some of the implications of these things is not um, necessarily uh, a life of puppy dogs and roses. Right? He goes on to say in verse 30, why are, then are we in danger every hour? Why are we in danger every hour? The, Paul, if, if anyone has a life of, of an example of what the implication of believing the resurrection could possibly lead to, it is Paul through his shipwrecks and his beatings and nearly being beaten to death multiple times and stoned. Paul is an example of, if we're gonna believe this, it's gonna cost us everything, but it's worth believing. 
It's worth believing because we hold to this hope. We hold to a hope that is offensive to those who do not have the eyes or the ears to hear. It goes back to verse 21, with all being in Adam, it is, it is, a, it is a guttural reaction of sin to, to object to the resurrection because it points out the realities that, there, that you need a savior, that you need someone to save you, that you in and of yourself are not sufficient for salvation, that there is a God who has a standard to live, a standard in which uh, must be met to spend eternity with him, and there's a punishment for sin. So Paul continues, he says, he says that I, I die every day. I die every day, I have to die every day. If the resurrection is true, I must die every day. Paul's circumstances, he, yeah, in, in being beaten and going through what Paul went through, even, even being imprisoned for the faith, I have to die every day, otherwise I would, I would want to be done with this. I would want out of this. I wouldn't necessarily say that this is worth it, but if Christ is raised from the dead, then everything that I go through in life and in ministry is worth it. He again points to the, the futility of life if Christ had not been raised by saying this. He says, if the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So there's, there's no other point to, to life then other than self-enjoyment because we're all gonna die anyway. So let's, let's, let's do it to the tens. Like, let's make this happen. But he says, but if Christ has been raised, then it changes everything. And finally, pointing to the futility of his argument, he uses a moral from Miranda's comedy, Face, which is a story of Alexander the Great and his courtesan, Face, where after defeating the Parisian army in victory, their celebration became excessive. It became excessive to the point where uh, drinking continued, this, the, the story goes, the drinking continued into the night and they're sitting around talking, and this, this, this woman of, of no military experience or uh, authority gives a speech in front of Alexander the Great, um, speaking of her trials and how they needed to avenge the burning of Athens uh, from the Parisians. And Alexander was moved and took a company of men and torched this palace of this kingdom that they had just overtaken. It was the home of Xerxes, um, and this torching of this part of the building was supposed to be just torching of Xerxes' home, but this fire spread. It spread and, and burned down and consumed most of the city itself. So what Paul is saying here is that even when, like, when he, says, he says that um, bad company corrupts good morals, He's saying that, that even listening to those who would attack has implications that are far, far bigger and, and cause more damage than what we would expect. So pay attention to, to who you give credence to. Pay attention to whose words stick in your mind and who influence you. Because there are many things that sound good. There are many convincing arguments. There are many people who would justify through rationale or or whatever means necessary to convince you of something. 
But here's the one thing that we know is true, the one thing that we can stand on, and that is the truth of God and the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead, beating sin, beating death, and earning for us our salvation. So what we believe has implications. What we believe has implications both in orthodoxy and orthopraxy, the ways in which we believe and how the outworkings of our belief flush out. Things that sound good and sound logical may, may have good arguments for you and they may change the way you view life, but we must always and consistently bring things back, just like the Bereans did. They take things back to the scriptures, filter them through the scriptures, and see if that is something to be affirmed or rejected. Friends, let me tell you, for thousands of years, for thousands of years, through the reliable testimony of Scripture, we can trust. We can trust in the finished work of Christ for the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen and amen. Let's pray. O oh, gracious and holy God, who through you and by you, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is risen and reigning eternally with you and the Holy Spirit. Merciful God, we believe. Help our unbelief. Increase our faith in you that we may rejoice in your resurrection and the future promised resurrection of the body. To you be all praise and honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.